All right, we are going to continue in our study in Luke's Gospel, looking at chapter 5, verses 33 to 39 this morning. And let me read it for us as we begin. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. And they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. And he told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says, the old is better. Let's pray. Father, first of all, as we come before you this morning, I just ask for your strength as I speak today. And I pray that your power would be made perfect in my weakness. I pray that you would give me clarity to share from your word and give us all ears to hear what you want to say to us today. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the parables that he used to teach spiritual truth that still apply today. And would you help us as we walk through this particular passage to see what it is that you want to say to us this morning. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, there are certain days that are more of a challenge to speak than others. And when you're feeling under the weather, uh, this is one of those days. I also thought it was ironic that today is the time change. So not only... Yeah, you feel a little tough, but I also lose an hour of sleep along the way as well. I shared with the worship team, I said, you know, I think about different things when it comes to a day like this. And, you know, if some of you are old enough to remember the Frasier television uh, series that was on for many years. Do you remember the episode where Frasier had a really bad cold and then he overdosed on whatever cold medication he was taking and he still wanted to be on the radio? <laughs> and, and Roz, his producer, called security and said, Frazier's taken over the brig and he's, you know, taking control of the enterprise and called security to get him out. And sometimes I wonder, too, when I'm, you know, should you let a pastor preach when he's on cold medication? <laughs> Let's see, was that the Dayquil or the NyQuil that I took this morning? <laughs> so we will do our best in trusting God to work through this as well. Um, When we come to this passage of Scripture, I call it Tales of the Kingdom because it's the beginning of Jesus' use of parables in the Gospel of Luke. And parables were one of the common ways that Jesus taught. And everybody loves a good story. I mean, good stories draw us in. We listen to the details. We remember them in a way that we do not remember truth statements quite as clearly because there's an association that's made. We get a picture in our mind. In seminary, we talked about the importance of illustrations in a message. You can't just give 
content. You used illustrations to become like windows in the message where people go, I get that. I see that. It helps us to understand and picture truth in our mind. And what we see with Jesus is that Jesus was a master storyteller. He taught using parables. And today we're going to look at a couple examples of that. In both Hebrew and Greek, the word for parable has a broad meaning. It can refer to stories, and that's what we most often think about when we think of parables. We think of stories like the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son. And one of the things you notice about Jesus' use of stories, though, is that they're pretty compact. I mean, he doesn't, you know, drift off and tell kind of these extraneous things. He, he really tightly tells a story that has a spiritual point to it. But parables can also refer to illustrations, like a couple of we're going to look at today. The new and old wineskins, for example, is a parable. But it's really short. It's more like just an illustration. And you'll find other ones, like when Jesus talked about the parable of the mustard seed or the parable of putting a lamp under a bowl, how no one does that. And he would say these things that are kind of funny when you think about it. And they're common sense, you might even say. But he used them to make these points. And parables can also refer to sayings and proverbs. Just like the one we looked at last week in chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. When he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And that's a statement. That's a proverb. And Jesus would also use um, proverbs or statements that really got the Pharisees to think. And sometimes the disciples didn't always understand them right away either. They're a bit like uh, giving somebody celery. you got to chew on it a while to get the real substance of it out. What we see in Scripture is that 35% of Jesus' teaching was done in parables. Now, the purpose of a parable is to capture our attention and teach us spiritual truth. And when it comes to interpreting a parable, you don't press all of the details. You look for the main point. What's the big idea that Jesus is trying to say here? What is it that he wants us to take away from this parable? And then most of Jesus' parables we're going to see are about the kingdom of God. They help us to see what his kingdom is like and how we are to live in this world. And with the coming of Christ, the kingdom of God broke into our world. And there is this change that has come. And that's what Jesus is teaching about in the section we're going to look at today. The first thing we see here is that the kingdom of God brings great joy. The kingdom of God brings great joy. It is like a wedding. Now, that's something we all can understand. We understand weddings and the celebrations that go with that. The joy that it brings to the young couple. The joy that it brings to families when two people come together in that love and in that celebration. Well, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked him a question about fasting. They said that John, John the Baptist's disciples fast. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. What's going on here? 
In Matthew's gospel, the same account is actually John's disciples who come and who ask that question too. We don't know if the Pharisees put them up to it, if they were behind what was going on. But there seems to be an implication here that they're saying that, you know, you guys aren't very spiritual. You know, you don't fast. Obviously, you must not be praying either. You know, and they're kind of looking down on Jesus' disciples. You see, the Pharisees themselves, uh, that, that word, their name means separated ones. The Pharisees prided themselves on strict adherence to the law and their traditions. And so even though it wasn't commanded, they fasted two days a week. Every Monday, every Thursday, they would fast. They prayed seven times a day. They had worked this out when you're supposed to pray, and they would pray religiously, we would say, as they went through their day. They avoided all contact with sinners, tax collectors, people like that, because they were the separated ones. And on the outside, they looked like the most righteous of men. But on the inside, their heart was far from God. And that is always just such a sober warning, isn't it? That people can look very religious on the outside, but it's what's on the inside that God sees that really matters. Where's our heart? Do we love God? And are we doing the things that we do out of love? Or are we doing it just to impress people? Or to want to look spiritual or religious? There's a warning here. When you think about John the Baptist, excuse me, and his disciples, well, they were very devout. Well, why did John fast? And why did he teach his disciples to fast? Well, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He came in that line. And remember those Old Testament prophets? They did some what we would think at times are crazy things. Some of their things God asked them to do where their life became an illustration of what he was trying to teach. John was out there in the wilderness calling people to repent. He lived on a diet of locusts and honey. His clothes were made of camel's hair. He preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is coming. It's a message that Jesus would pick up on, but Jesus' lifestyle was different. Jesus comes along, and he goes to weddings, and he eats with tax collectors and sinners. He touches those who are unclean. He heals their diseases. He forgives their sins. I mean, he's having this contact with people that are those that the Pharisees would want nothing to do. They would exclude them. And Jesus answered their question with a parable. Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Would you really ask those bridal attendants and the family to fast when there's a wedding going on? No, you wouldn't at all. David Wenham described the kind of wedding that we are picturing here. Today, when we think of weddings, we think of a ceremony that takes place in the church, and then they may have a reception here, or they may go somewhere else for a wedding reception. Uh, There's food that's provided. There's a meal that is served. There's a celebration, a time to greet the couple and to enjoy that. They may have a dance that goes with that. I mean, there are a number of things that are part of that celebration, and it is a joyous occasion. Well, back then... 
there was not a ceremony that took place before the meal. The meal was the wedding. It's kind of interesting. They didn't have a service in the synagogue where the couple were married and then they went to the home. No, instead, the meal was where everything took place. And so the guests who were invited to the wedding would come to the bridegroom's home and they would join with him. And then when the time had come where they were to go for the bride, they would all march down the street and they'd walk to the bride's home and they would, you know, greet her and then walk back with her to the bridegroom's home where they would have this celebration, this meal, and they would be married. The young couple were treated like a king and queen. They were treated like royalty. And this celebration would last for days. It wasn't just one day, but it would last for that week as they had this special celebration that was going on. The implication is that there was something joyful and significant here with the coming of the kingdom. It was like a wedding. But maybe what was even more significant here was Jesus himself calling himself the bridegroom. Because in the Old Testament, the bridegroom is God. For example, in the book of Hosea, it is God who says to his people that I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. That was Hosea 2.19. So was Jesus identifying himself with God when he said that I'm the bridegroom? Yes, I believe he was. And he is describing that this is a time of joyful celebration. It's not a time to fast. But that day will come. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And what he is saying there is really it's his first hint that Jesus is going to die by violent death. The time will come when this bridegroom will be taken away from the disciples. And in that day, they will fast. That's the day in which we live. We live in this church age. And there are times when as believers, we will fast or we should fast. It's not required. It's not mandated that you have to fast a certain day of the week or days of the week or certain times. But fasting is one of those spiritual disciplines that even we as believers will practice. And there are times when we may, we may be wrestling with a decision and we want to know God's will and we fast. There may be times when you are praying for the salvation of someone you love and you fast. Times when you just want to meet with God or maybe you're wrestling with sin or you want to see a habit broken in your life and you fast in earnestness, in prayer to hear from God. And when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God being like a wedding, it really pictures for us and we look forward to what is going to come in the future. That final great feast the marriage supper of the Lamb in which every true believer will participate. And can you imagine what that celebration is going to be like when Jesus, our bridegroom, is wedded to his bride and we are joined together in that great celebration with the Lord. The kingdom of God brings joy. And secondly... He teaches us that the kingdom of God is dynamic and powerful. 
It cannot be contained in old forms. In verses 36 to 38, again, he tells them a couple parables. And he uses these as examples. He says that no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And again, that was common practice. Everybody knew that. It was an illustration. You don't take an old garment that's been washed and it has shrunk, you know, and everything's happened to it where it's kind of faded and fits you and everything like that, and then put a new cloth on it. Because when you do that, that new cloth is going to shrink and it's going to tear away and it's going to wreck that old garment and leave it in threads. You know, I was thinking about how when I was a kid, I would get holes in my jeans. And it shows you how old I am when we didn't buy jeans with holes in. You actually got them from playing games or baseball or working on the farm and you would get holes in your jeans. And at that time, you didn't really want to wear holy jeans to school, you know, so my mom would patch them. And many times what I remember her doing when she would patch them is she would take another pair of old jeans that she had, you know, saved that had gotten worn out. And she'd cut a patch out of that and put them over the hole of my jeans because it's like an old pair and an old pair so that they would work together. Well, then came out these new iron-on patches that they had. You know, I don't even know if they're still around. But, you know, she tried those. Thought, well, maybe this will save some time and work. I'll just put one of those iron-on patches. Well, they didn't work with a 10-year-old boy who liked to play in the, you know, dirt and in the trees and stuff like that, you know. Because I remember those new patches would stick, but then the same thing, they would tear out. When it was washed, they would pull away from the rest of the garment, and they did not work very well. And what Jesus is saying here is that something significant has happened with the new kingdom. It is powerful, it is dynamic, and it can't be contained in these old forms of Judaism. He's going to say the same thing with the new and old wineskins. Wineskins in those days were made from the neck of a sheep or a goat. They would take that part of the skin, and they would use that for these new wineskins. And when they were new, they could stretch. They were pliable when that wine fermented. But if you put wine into old wineskins when it was fermenting, it would burst the skins. They had no pliability. They would just simply stretch and break, and everything would be lost. He is saying that new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And his point on both of these, again, is that the new covenant is so different from the old that it calls for new ways of doing things, new ways of worship, new ways of coming before the Father. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that or wasn't starting something that was completely new with no connection to Judaism. I mean, Christianity comes out of Judaism. And Jesus would also tell the disciples that he came to fulfill the law. In Matthew 5, 17, he said, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he did that perfectly. Jesus would fulfill all of the requirements of the law, 
by living a sinless life in obedience to the Father's will. And in order for him to accomplish our salvation, he had to do that. He had to be that perfect, sinless Son of God. And in the same way, Jesus would offer himself as the perfect Lamb of God, once for all, in fulfillment of the law's requirement to atone for our sin. Because we had sinned, and we had broken that relationship with God, if we were going to be forgiven, someone had to pay that debt that we owed. And only one who was perfect could do that. And so Jesus died in our place. And when he died on that cross, he would cry out, It is finished. This debt has been paid in full. And that sacrifice that he made was once for all. It would never need to be repeated again. Kind of the final blow on that to Judaism, if you will, was then when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And the whole sacrificial system, all those things that had been practiced from the time of Moses, was done. It's it's interesting to me because there is a warning here against syncretism. Syncretism is where you kind of mix religious practices. And if even Judaism could not be mixed into Christianity, how could any other religion? I mean, if these things that were part of Judaism could not be carried over into this new covenant, then how can you know, people who come to know Christ in Africa or Asia or other parts of the world think that they can mix in tribal beliefs now or old practices, old religious customs with something that is so new and dynamic and powerful? They can't. This is a new covenant, a new work of God. And so we see in this third section then that the kingdom of God brings this kind of change. But he said, and this is true of human nature, that no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. And here he's talking about those Pharisees in particular, but he's talking about humans in general who sometimes resist change. Jesus is making this radical break from the old covenant, and uh, it calls for new forms of worship. And think about the change that it would bring. There would be no more animal or grain sacrifices. The whole sacrificial system under the old covenant was done. There'd be no more unclean foods, no more dietary restrictions. God declared all foods clean. There's no more Sabbath restrictions on how far you can walk on a particular Sabbath, what you can do or can't do. Paul will say in Romans that one man regards one day as more important than another. You know, we meet on the Lord's Day because that's the day of the resurrection. And we have come to do that as a custom because it is good to be together. But we don't live under the same Sabbath restrictions that were part of that old covenant. And then this profound thing that happened when the temple was destroyed so that there is no longer a temple. There's no longer a place where you have to go to meet with God. 
when Christ came into this world, in John 1.14, it said that he came from the Father, this word, and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He was God in human flesh who lived among us. And then the New Testament goes on and takes that even farther, though, when it says that um, Jesus is having this conversation with the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman says, you know, well, we worship on this mountain. Uh, you guys, you Jews, you know, you worship in Jerusalem on that mountain. You know, who's right and where are we supposed to meet with God? And Jesus will say, woman, I tell you, the day is coming. When people won't worship on that mountain or the other mountain. But those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. That those who truly worship God will do that from their heart and they will do it according to his word, what he has written. And they will come together wherever they are. And believers will join as we do on a Sunday morning in locations all around this world and they will come to worship the Lord. But you can also meet with God when you're driving to work in the morning, you can meet with God in your home. You can meet with God when you're out enjoying his creation or on vacation or traveling. You can meet with the Lord wherever you are. And why is that? It is because we who believe in Jesus are now that temple where God dwells. That is just stunning. I mean, that truth. I, I never get over that. The truth of that statement. That when we come to know Jesus, he lives in us. He dwells in our heart and we become that temple of the living God. That's what those passages talk about. That's why we are to turn from sin. That's why we are to live a life that pleases him. Because our body belongs to God and we are temples of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We receive that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What began at Pentecost continues in the church age. And the Holy Spirit dwells in the heart of every true follower of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 9 will say, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, they do not belong to him. I mean, one of those signs, one of the ways that we know that we truly know Jesus is to have that internal witness and assurance of the Holy Spirit that you are a child of God. And it's one of those things that, that you know, you can know that you're a believer by the evidence of a changed life, by the faith that you have placed your commitment in Jesus, but you can also know it by that internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The new covenant is better. There's freedom, there's joy, there's forgiveness. But sadly, some do not want that. And some continue to say the old is better. And the Pharisees were like that. They would not change. They did not want to follow Jesus. There would be those exceptions like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and others who would come to follow Jesus. But for the most part, the religious leaders at that time wanted nothing to do with him. Sometimes we get into ruts. Old habits are hard to change. I ran across an interesting story in the Wall Street Journal. This is a number of years ago. But 
it was talking about how the Iron Curtain that existed for so many years between Germany and places like Czechoslovakia, between the East and the West, not only affected people and their habits, but it even affected the animal kingdom. And they were talking about how they have noticed that two herds of red deer developed on either side of the Iron Curtain. And that curtain came down in 1989. And yet there still is this physical barrier, it seems, between these two herds where they don't cross over to the other side. And they did some tracking. They tracked one of the female does on the east German side, and they watched her movements. And they tracked her location more than 11,000 times on GPS. And she would make her way up to where the fence once was and stop and turn back. And she did that many times. And what they were talking about, what's interesting about this female doe, is that uh, she was born after that wall came down. It's been many, many years since that fence was there. And yet deer tend to follow old habits and routes that their parents or grandparents, you might say, went on and do the same thing. And the other thing that's really interesting about that is where that fence once stood, it has now become a nature preserve. It's a beautiful area. It's green. It's lush. It's a place where you'd think deer would want to migrate to. But someone's got to break that rut. Someone's got to go across and say it's okay to make this change. And I think about that for us and for people. Maybe you grew up in a family that didn't know Christ. And maybe you wrestled with that. And God called you out. And and it's been maybe a challenge for you. You came to know Christ and you experienced new freedom and new joy in your heart. But you're thinking about your family that doesn't know Jesus. Somebody had to start to break that cycle and take that first step. And by the grace of God, I pray that he would use you to be an example to others who would also follow into the freedom that there is in Christ. Maybe you're thinking about churches. I think about that as a pastor, and I think of how churches sometimes have life cycles. And sometimes churches get stuck in ruts, and they don't want to change. And there need to be new forms of worship or how we do things. I mean, the gospel never changes. The importance of prayer, the centrality of the word of God. I mean, all those things are essential to being a true believer in a true church. But as times change, churches can drift or get stuck in ruts that are out of date, out of touch. And so as a church, we need to be relevant. We need to be preaching the gospel where it is heard and doing the best that we can to reach our generation for Christ as well. I wonder, God, is it, what is it that you want us to do? What are you calling us to do as individuals and as a church? Well, what matters most is our heart. That's where it all starts. It's not with the external things. It's with our heart relationship with God. And we need to recognize that forms of worship and evangelism may change. But again, the gospel never changes. 
You know, when I came out of seminary, I, you know, you could kind of kiddingly say that the way you could tell a good church was, did they have a Wednesday night prayer meeting? That was sort of the norm. Churches had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and that's what what you did as you, uh, you know, had worship services and prayer times. Well, that has all changed. And I think today of how, because of even uh, the use we make of emails and prayer chains and things like that, we have more people praying more quickly in response to needs that come up now than we did back then. You know, back then you waited maybe till the Wednesday night when you met and you shared some prayer requests and you prayed for people. Today, we have hundreds of people in our church who get those prayer updates immediately and can join in praying. I think of how worship has changed through the years. And things will cycle and there will be differences, but there are always new forms of worship that come. And the scripture tells us to sing to the Lord a new song. And so we do that. But there is still continuity. It's still our love for God that is being expressed through these different styles of worship. And we can enjoy both the old and the new in that regard. But I think of this generation. And I wonder how will we, re- how will we reach the millennials? What is it going to take to do that effectively? And I think that is something that we need to look at. And I think that each generation needs to seriously think about how they can reach their peers. How do you bring the gospel to those that are your age? And how can we as a church help in passing the baton on to the next generation? What I take away from a passage like this is that we are to live as kingdom people. We are to live with joy. Joy in our heart because of what Jesus has done for us. We're to live with power because the kingdom of God is dynamic and ever-changing, ever-effective. And we are to live with the Holy Spirit's leading. We have been the beneficiaries of this great blessing. The Word and the Spirit that are given to us to empower us to live the Christian life. Let's live as kingdom people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word from Jesus today. And I pray that we would take to heart what he has said as you think about, or as we think about our church and we think about our own personal lives. Father, may we be open to what you want to do. And may we be sensitive to your spirit's leading. And I pray for those who maybe feel like, you know, they've been kind of trapped in a rut. And they feel like they want to change whatever that may be that's binding them in their relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would set them free by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.